I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode. Today's guest is Felicia Lawrence. She is a radar systems engineer at Northrop Grumman. Felicia, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with a question we always start with, which is, what do you do as a radar systems engineer? Uh, so basically, I work with uh, radar hardware. So um, any radar that fly on aircraft, uh, sail on ships, um, in space, any kind of hardware um, I work with, uh, we build and, and test hardware um, in-house. And that's about all I'm allowed to say about that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, um, it's working with a lot of um, different uh, systems and different platforms and different languages and things. And um, and it's it's really rewarding. It's really um to actually be able to see uh, your hardware that you worked on actually in action and in, in battle and in different situations. So, do you actually design them, or you help design them, or you kind of integrate that into a system? Right now, I'm more on the integration side. Um, actually, my um I will actually be going over to the design side uh, eventually, but right now I'm just working on the the integration. So, integration and test is what I work on. If you're working, if you're doing integration, does that mean you're sort of like you're handed a design and they say make it work? Exactly, yes. <laughs> that sounds like an impossible task. It is, um, but luckily <laughs> there are a lot of people that are smart and smarter than me that uh, work on it. And, you know, it's really a great team atmosphere when you work on uh, a system like that. And um, being one of the only women, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is, has been a challenge for me, um, but that's always been the case throughout my career. And how did you end up? doing this? Um, Well, actually, my grandfather was one of the first um, electrical engineers at NSA. Um, He was a a coder. And um, that was back in the during the Cold War era. And um, I didn't get to meet him, unfortunately, because he passed away. But um, I did get to read a lot of his notes and books and see a lot of his equipment. And when I was a child, and so that's how that kind of sparked my interest into um, engineering in general. Do any of those notes help you now? They actually do. A lot of the math. <laughs> really? Yeah, the math never, the math never changes. <laughs> You're like, oh, what did my grandfather do that time? It didn't work. Yeah. Let's see here. Yeah, he had an actual shop and everything in his, um, in his house and all kinds of equipment. I mean, from back from the 60s and 70s. So, Aren't you glad technology has improved slightly since then? Uh, yes, but we still do um, use some equipment from back then <laughs> because it still works. <laughs> So besides your grandfather's influence, you know, what, what, did, what was your trajectory in school? Did you know, okay, I'm, that's it, I'm an engineer, here I go? Or how did you decide on radar systems or something like that? Well, I actually started out in middle school. Um, I had a really excellent teacher named Miss Doyle, and um, she started, she's, you know, she's a woman, and she started this uh, middle school organization that would follow behind American Medical Association. So she called it Junior American Medical Association, and she joined up with the national chapter. And so her main push was to get girls interested, girls my age interested in STEM. And so we did a lot of things. We went to tour Johns Hopkins. We went to Patuxent 4-H Center and did experiments. So actually, I started out doing more biology than engineering. But um, as I matriculated to high school, uh, Prince George's County has a program called um, Science and Technology Program. And you test into it. And if you're good enough, um, they only take about 200 students a year. If you're good enough, you get in and you get to work on different engineering tasks as a high school student. 
So in ninth grade, I was soldering things and putting things together and making them work and using AutoCAD and different things like that. So high school, being in the special program really was what put me on the path to becoming an engineer. And then so after college, um, how did you decide to go and or why did you decide to go and get a PhD? Uh, well, um, when I was a senior, um, I actually won an internship at NASA um, going into my senior year, and um, it was actually funneled through Howard University. And so throughout the internship, we got to do, you know, different things. And um, at the end of the internship, they liked me, and Howard asked me if I would consider going to grad school. And I'd already thought I was going to go to grad school, but I didn't consider atmospheric science. And I didn't consider Howard University. I wanted to go to Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And Howard said, well, we'll pay you. And I said, oh, how can oh, I say okay. no? <laughs> I consider Howard University. <laughs> Yeah, so I ended up um, getting into their program as an intern that following summer going into grad school. And um, and that's when I began working in the radar lab at NASA in um, Building 33. So I was working on the um, NASA ER-2 radar, which used to fly on the ER-2 aircraft. And now it's a ground-based radar called Badger. Do you, did you, I mean, atmospheric science, I mean, what did you study doing your PhD in that? That's such a broad topic. It is. It <laughs> what, really what did is. you focus so, on? So um, my main focus was atmospheric physics. Um, so basically it was like basic physics concepts for maybe like your first or second year of college just applied on a grand scale. Um, for example, in oceanography, you know, they, they, they reverse everything's negative. It's in the ocean with the sky. You have to think about, uh, radiation. You have to think about other things that are in the sky. You have to think, think about atmospheric composition. There's all these kind of things that go into our atmosphere that we don't even know about. I mean, don't get me started on clouds and what they do. And we don't even know what they do at this point. And we don't know what drives our weather. So I've, um, I thought that was very interesting. And my father worked for, um, he retired recently. He worked for National um, Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And so um, he was always pushing me to look into, he was like, oh, you know, physical science, atmospheric science, that's the future because people want to know what's going on with the weather. They want to mm-hmm. know, you know, this things people want to know. Like if you're forecasting for the Super Bowl, you want to know if it's going to be hailing outside. So it's something that it's a field I feel that will never go away. And um, and that's just kind of how I fell into it, per se. <laughs> well, how much has it changed? I mean, if you're saying like we're laughing about how nobody knows anything about clouds, that seems like we feel like we should know something about clouds by now. We know a little bit. But what happens on a molecular level is that we just can't get up there far enough to see dip deep into the clouds to see small cloud microphysics. So we can't really... We're only able to really predict the weather about 24 to 48 hours eight out 100% accurately. The models just have not caught up with um, what's happening. It's, you know, the models are a lot better now, but um, that was one of the other things that I studied was numerical weather prediction um, in school because people want to know, like, oh, seven-day forecast, is that true, you know? Um, so most of the time, as we can see, sometimes it's not true, but, you know, they've gotten a lot better. Meteorology has progressed and things like that. So as the technology increases, the field increases, if it gets better and broader. Do your friends misunderstand what you do and ask you about weather predictions all the time? All the time. (laughs) They call me from various states and ask me, is the hurricane going to hit us? I don't know. (laughs) No, I don't know. Don't ask me. Oh, that's funny. I'm not sure. But I try my best to help them, you know, because, I mean, it's just it's just something that people don't think about. But then when they find out that you do it, they're like, wow, you do that. What is that about? You know, what? how does that happen? And they want to ask you all these questions. And I think that's great. I think it's great that people 
lay, lay people, when lay people take an interest in things that are very specific, especially like atmospheric science. Speaking of which, how do you, like with all the talk these days with, with science and, and funding and all this stuff, I mean, I know you're working for you know defense contractor in Northrop and doing similar science, but do, do you worry that people don't quite understand science and what they're, what you're working on and think all people who do atmospheric science know the weather and stuff like that? Do you worry about general population education? Yeah, I worry about it all the time because um, I actually used to tutor um, on the side while I was in grad school um, just to make a little bit extra money and to, you know, see what the younger generation is thinking about. And, you know, working with different kids from from K on up to 12th grade, I can really see a lack of teaching on a STEM level like that's really we're really missing. We're missing the mark as far as getting younger generations in, interested in STEM, I think. And I think that it's something that, you know, I think is getting better. But, I mean, who can really tell? There's really no tangible way to measure it as far as, like, you know, who is interested in STEM and who's going to end up being in STEM. So, I mean, I do worry about it. I, I try to preach as much as I can about <laughs> science and math. Any opportunity, I'm talking. So, <laughs> So how do you get from atmospheric science to radars? Well, so I asked my my advisor when I came over to atmospheric science from engineer, I said, am I going to be allowed to play with things? <laughs> and he I want said, toys. Yeah, I want to play with things. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, we've got this, um, this uh, mentor, somebody looking to mentor at NASA. You know, she was a scientist and I was an engineer, so the the play between us was really interesting because I had never seen it from a science side and she had never seen it from an engineering side. And so she, so it was interesting to see the mesh between the two and what we came up with. And um, I actually did a lot of work for her, for her a radar that she recently built, um, a lot of legwork. And it, you know, it, it just was, it was a good, it was a good match for me to work on radar because I could work on the science side as well as play with things. So that's what I really liked about it. Has the I asked this question already, but I talking about radar and other technical things we can play with. Have those changed a lot in in recent years, or or in, do they change constantly? Are you sort of always redesigning or recoding or writing with new new code or new in a new language? I would say that um, it changes from year to year. Honestly, pretty rapidly. I mean, the basic design for radar is still the same. It's not going to go anywhere, but how it's implemented is changing. So um, a big push um, now and out in the world is um, to have hardware, but to software enable things. So basically you have this hardware, but you write the software to really, to really, really dig into the hardware. So like small, small chips, like uh, CMOS, Siggy chips, um, G, uh, Guessing arsenide chips, all the smaller embedded systems are what the big push is now. So, so everybody's trying to downsize hardware. So, I mean, a radar used to take up like a whole room. Now it takes up a desktop. Well, that makes a difference, right? Yeah. So it's, it's progressing, but it's decade by decade, I think would be a better mm -hmm. comparison. So knowing that you can't tell us a lot about the specifics of what you do, has there been anything that you've done that's kind of either surprised you um, in a good way, in a bad way, or you found interesting? Hmm. That you can talk about. That you can talk <laughs> about. <laughs> I think what I found interesting was more so in grad school, um, 
So what I did for my dissertation was, I'll give you the shortened version. What I did was I basically created a semi-automated way to detect winds in three dimensions using um, the big WSR-88D uh, S-band radars, which are in operation by NOAA all throughout the United States. So it's like massive coverage over all the continental United States. And um, so what I found, what surprised me was that um, the community was so supportive. Like when I would reach out to um, someone at a university or at a company or at anywhere, they were very responsive and they wanted to help me. And I was very surprised at that because in grad school, people were really like kind of like in their own corner and, you know, I don't want to share code with you. I don't want to share this with you. And so when I got out into the actual more, more towards the industry and work world side, um, the, the response I got was overwhelming that for help. That was, that's what surprised me. I will say. Do you think there's a lot of collaboration out there and we just don't really hear about it? Or you only hear about people fighting over there who's going to publish first? I think there's a lot of collaboration going on. I think with the new open source um, and open architecture push, I think that there will be a lot more collaboration going on than before. Um, Because before it was, you know, we've got this legacy code here. We've got these legacy programs and we're it's owned by the university. And, you know, but people are working to update these things so that people can share and work well together and be, you know, be one. (laughs) So I think that, um, I think that, that, I think eventually it will get to the point where everybody's sharing information and more, you know, it's more open in the field. Looking forward. And I know you obviously you can't predict the future, even especially since you can't predict the weather. Um, (laughs) uh, What's next? What's next on the horizon? What, what can you sort of, what are you looking forward to as an engineer saying, Oh, I can't wait until we develop X because it will make everything so much easier. Uh, What I'm really looking forward to is the, um, the further development of space radar. Um, right now, space radar is kind of in its early stages because there are so many things that go into operating a radar, and you know, and we're not actually up in space, so we can't really <laughs> run it, and you know, in those conditions. So I, I, I'm looking forward to more development with spaceborne radar because I think that um, once we figure it out, I think we'll have a lot better surveillance, a lot better weather prediction. Um, I really think that's the way of the future and also the micro satellites that they'll fly on. Um, I think the, the CubeSats, yeah, the CubeSats, yeah, CubeSats and smaller and whatever everybody's working on. I don't know everything, but, but, you know, I think that, um, once we, once we figure out what we're doing with spaceborne radar, I think a lot of things will, uh, you know, vastly move forward. Um, with technology. All right, all right. Humor the non-engineer in this three, the three of us here. Um, Spaceborne radar. What does that give you that's different than what we do here? Is it just because of the, the physical location of it? And and oh, explain that to me. Well, so you'll be able to have a beam looking up and a beam looking oh, down. Okay. Gotcha. So okay. you'll be able to see the in between. Um, so right now, remember I said earlier about the clouds. Mm-hmm. We can look at clouds from space, but um, they're low power. The, the the instruments we use are very low power sometimes. Mm-hmm. So we don't get um, as big of a bounce back from them. So we don't really get, you know, and then and, and then transmit up and down, you know, a lot of information is lost, the signal's lost, things like that. You have signal degradation. Um, right. So I think that when we figure out how to marry those two up, um, the uplink and the downlink from a radar, I think that we'll be able to see into clouds a lot clearer than we can now. That makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for humoring me. No, no, no problem. <laughs> I do this to Mumu all the time. Um, Because you talk about clouds. Is there, 
I ask some weird questions sometimes. Uh, <laughs> is there anything strange about clouds that people, that everyday people would not really know or think about? Well, uh, one interesting thing that I learned in school was that you can actually shoot silver iodide into a cloud. Um, and when the cloud moves, it can affect the weather to wherever that cloud moves to. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. It's called, <laughs> it's called can... cloud seeding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so you you're can... basically telling me we can control the weather is what you're saying. To an extent. To an extent. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's this theory that they've tried to prove over in, um, in Asia for the last probably about 20 years. And they believe that they can shoot silver iodide into a cloud and that the cloud will rain out and affect the weather for the next few days. That's that's probably one of the the most interesting things I've ever heard. So they think they have it. They think they have it figured out. I don't know. <laughs> OK, so I guess it's technically feasible. But is it if if a country were to do that, would that affect weather patterns in other countries oh, yeah. unintendedly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Oh, so there's like lovely. diplomatic things you have to think That's about. That's a mess waiting to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, they have papers out on it and I guess they, the community, the atmospheric science community call, kind of calls it crazy science right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, they're getting people on board with their theory. So we'll see. Okay. I, I mean, Mumu makes a really interesting point. I mean, can you imagine the diplomatic nightmare that that could cause? Like, oh, yeah. you could figure out the science like that, some country, the United States, could be like, well, we're in a drought in California. Let's seed the clouds so that it rains more in California. And then it winds up, like, causing mass flooding in yeah. Ireland or something like but that. But I will say they hope to do it over um, sub-Saharan Africa because it's so dry and the mm-hmm. population has been decimated because of starvation and um, famine. So And they can't grow any crops. Um, one of the um, students I went to school with was actually from sub-Saharan Africa, and that was one of his um, projects and papers while he was in school, how to get, make it rain in sub-Saharan Africa. That's only a moderate goal to aim for there. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, I'm going to cure a desert. Let's see how we can fix that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really, really cool when I was in school. I, I was like, you were really smarter than me because I have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um. Do you think people will misunderstand your field, like radar studies and stuff in general? We just think you're playing with toys or, or... I think so. I think a lot of people are weary about the government watching them and things like that. I think people are really... I mean, when, you're, when you don't know something, you when you don't know about something, sometimes you're scared of it or you're afraid of it. And I think that, you know, and you, then you don't believe it. So you don't believe in it. And I think that that's a big problem in our country right now is that people don't believe that fire burns. I mean, you know, things are changing. Yeah. Like we're having heavier rains, bigger storms, violent storms, um, stronger hurricanes. So, you know, there, there's something going on. And it's not just somebody shooting <laughs> no. things into the clouds and messing no. with them. <laughs> Felicia, is there anything else um, that, that I might have not, that we haven't asked or, or something that you think is interesting that, that the average person doesn't know about what you do in, in the fields you're in? Oh, I will say this. I, um, a lot of people don't know this um, about this program. So I, I worked for uh, three years for this program called uh, Satellite Search and, uh, and Track Satellite. What is it? SARSAT. Search and Rescue Satellite Aided Tracking. Okay. So, so what happens is if you get lost anywhere in the world, put that in air quotes. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can you you can buy this beacon. It operates on four four hundred six megahertz, and that's the search and rescue distress channel that's designated by the FCC. So what happens is you say you fall down and break your leg when you're like 
out on the road or something or you run out of gas or whatever. You, your snowmobile runs out of gas. I don't know. You hit this beacon. It sends a satellite uplink to um, satellites that are in polar and geosynchronous rotation. So the polar satellites give us your location. The geos tell us that you activated the beacon. And so they will send search and rescue assets to pick you up if you set off this beacon. And, and it works? And it works. Well, that it's, makes sense. There's like I a 90, 95% chance that you will be picked up if you hit this beacon. If you're in a canyon, you know, you might have to wait a while. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> they figure out where exactly you are. Yeah. yeah. Because it echoes this, around. Yeah, we had this one guy who was um, in a valley in uh, like somewhere in Switzerland or something. And, and they didn't come pick him up within 15 minutes. And he was very upset. And he was calling everyone. But it's actually <laughs> it's actually an international program. So um, all the countries, even some of our enemies, participate in it. Um, they have big conferences around the world to talk about search and rescue and how they can improve. And so it's it's a real. I mean, I love that job. It was a very rewarding job. And um, but I was a contractor, and it was time for me to move on. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you know, it was and do something else. But it's a very interesting program. Not a lot of people know about it. So unless you're like an extreme sports person or you travel a lot or, you know, you wouldn't know about it. It's not something that's publicized. But every time that the um, Coast Guard flies a helicopter out and picks someone up, more than likely they had a search and rescue beacon. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if you're out with a yacht or you're doing, you know, something like that. Yeah, so all the boats, it's required when you buy a boat, it's required that you have this um, emergency beacon on it. It's called an EPIRB and it's required that you have it on your boat. Uh, planes have ELTs, emergency locate transmission. So all but all planes in the United States have this beacon. So whenever a plane crashes, they can get to the site immediately. So that was that was a great program, I think. It, and it's it's been in operation for the last thirty years. It seems like it's funny. It's like for us carrying phones around and thinking like, oh, we have communications right in our pockets. Like, yeah, well, we've had these like search and rescue beacons for thirty years. So <laughs> yeah, like... yeah, they've been around for thirty years. What ha- well, the reason they started the program is because one of the congressmen. Um, in Alaska was flying his plane and he crashed and they could never find, they didn't find him for about 15 years. So, so the, that's how this program came about. So at first it operated on 121 megahertz, which is the Homer. So, you know, that's the old like Cold War, World War II type beacon. So, and then they upgraded to the 406 and, and now they can find you anywhere. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Felicia, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be our guinea pig Um, (laughs) and uh, coming on our show. Um, We really appreciate it. No, thank you. This is really rewarding. I love talking to other women that are in STEM, and I love talking about STEM in general. So I I really appreciate you all having me on your show. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. Copy Cuts.